Folks, I get a big smile on my face every time I hear that tune because it's time for another week of the Rec Poker Podcast. So thank you all for joining us uh, this week. This is the forums edition of the podcast. So we're going to be taking a forum post from our free forums over at rec.poker and talking about it here with the Rec and Crew members on the air. Um, so uh, if you're not sure what's going on, who are these people, what's Rec Poker, I'll just tell you quickly, we're a group of very enthusiastic and excited uh, recreational poker players. We've a lot of us have had some success on on the felt, but we are we have day jobs. We do this for fun. We love the study of the game. We love studying together. Um, we have a premium membership at Rec Poker where you can come and join the group here. Uh, it costs five dollars for your first month and only fifteen dollars a month after that. I know it's crazy affordable. How can people not be jumping up at the opportunity to come join our premium membership? Um, but you can also just come and get a free community account. Head on over to rec.poker. All it takes is an email address and a smile, and you can be posting in our forums, joining the podcast, play, uh, playing in our home game series that John Somsky runs. Uh, you can be a part of our Discord channel. We do uh, free videos uh, coming out every month. We do free uh, engaging learning sessions that happen. Uh, so you don't have to be a premium member to come take part. It's uh, all part of what we do here at Rec Poker. I have to thank our sponsors because we are a largely volunteer-based organization. The sponsorship helps a lot. Uh, principally, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino. We definitely couldn't do it without their support. And if you're listening to this when it comes out, it's the very last week of December. It is December 27th when this one's going to come out. So I'm wishing everyone a happy holidays. And I'm also saying uh, a fond uh, adieu to Mark Prashan, who is no longer our technical director. Mark has been with us for a long time. He really helped us build up the website and a lot of the technical issues that have uh, faced our community as we've tried to grow and, and become a more complicated group and trying to do more online and that sort of thing. So it's been fantastic having Mark be such a key part of this. Uh, he's got some very exciting plans of his own coming up. And uh, while we're not going to be working together as closely, I know he's always going to be a big part of what we do here at Rec Poker. And I'm I'm just personally so grateful for the help that we've had, uh, not only in this year, but in the previous years. And I'm looking forward, Mark, to seeing what the future holds for you. I know it's bright. And uh, thank you again for all your help. So um, those are the sponsors. But I have to also thank our premium members for kicking in that $15 a month. That pledge makes a big difference to what we're doing here. Um, and of course, the Wrecking Crew, the core team of uh, people that make all the magic happen here at Rec Poker. Uh, my name is Jim Reed. I'm Bluff Starini in the home game and at Rec Poker Jim on Twitter. Uh, but just because you hear my voice more than everybody else's, uh, it's only because they put me in front of the mic here on Mondays, folks. We could not do what we do without all the other members of the Wrecking Crew pitching in each and every day, week and month uh, to make Rec Poker better. If you want to learn more about me and the rest of the Wrecking Crew, you can go to rec.poker slash crew and see all those smiling faces. But you can also listen up because you're going to meet a few of them right here tonight. Uh, my name is uh, Ben Enslow. Um, you can find me on Twitch, uh, bjamin 96 The rest of my socials are there. And I'm East Coast bitter in the home games. I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5b5 on Twitter or 5x5 in the Poker Stars home game. And I am John Somsky. I am Poker Geek MN everywhere. I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 just about everywhere. <laughs> and I've mentioned before, we have such a vibrant and encouraging premium membership here. Um, one of the things I love is when our premium members come and join us on the on the show here to record the forums edition. It's just one of the perks of being a premium member. There's the book study, our learning with partners program, all the study groups, all the discussion strategy sessions that we have every month. Um, but some of the fun that our premium members can have is joining us here on the forums edition. If you're a regular listener, you've heard John Crowell before. He's been a, a regular poster in the forums and a guest on the show many times. I think his insights have always um, elevated the conversation that we've had here on the show, and I'm excited to welcome John back uh, today. So, John, first of all, we're going to talk a little bit about a hand that you posted today, um, and I also want to talk a bit about this tournament that you played because you had some excellent results. And um, But first of all, just why don't you just introduce yourself to Rec Poker Nation if they haven't heard from you before and let people know uh, where they can find you in the home game and uh, just say hi. 
Hi, I'm John Kroll. I'm uh, seven high 11 in the home game. And that's about it. I'm not on any social media. <laughs> Good for you. I think that's probably a wise mental health decision these days, John. <laughs> so, um, John, I, I'm so excited about this. So John recently won an online tournament. Um, it had uh, a little over 630 runners. It was an MTT on Ignition. Um, John has John joined our premium membership about a year ago. And it's just been fantastic for me in particular to watch John's ascent as a player. So John has this great attitude about learning where he's he's posted all these spots in the forums, not places where he's played hands perfectly and he wants everyone to tell him what a great job he's done. But he's posted these questions in the forum week out, week in and week out, knowing he's done something wrong and looking for ways to improve, looking for uh, ways to learn how to not make the same mistake twice. And, you know, as long as you're making new mistakes every day, that's what success looks like to me, honestly. If you can avoid just repeating the same mistakes over and over again, then you're ahead of the curve, especially when it comes to poker. So um, I, I just feel like, uh, John, you're, you're your poker journey has been an ascent. You've done a great job of putting the pieces together and being patient with variance, you know, and not letting uh, it get you down when things aren't going your way. You've asked a lot of great questions. And I was just so pleased to see you you deserve to win a tournament like this. And you did. Um, and it was only a matter of time. And, and people think I'm being glib when I say that. But you can tell these players that are taking it seriously and trying to learn and getting better you can see them getting better in the forums. You can see them getting better in the home games. Um, the questions that they ask, the conversations that they're having with other rec poker uh, members. Um, so it's just been it's been a beautiful thing to see. And just congratulations, John. You deserve this. And it was only a matter of time. I'm so glad to see you have this success. Well, thank you. Now you've been you've been a member for about a year. Um, I sort of I mentioned that you've posted in the forums quite a bit. Uh, is that where you feel like you've had had the biggest impact on your game from the responses in the forums and being on the show or have there been other aspects of your premium membership that have kind of helped you come along in your journey? No, I, I think the biggest things have been involved with some of the, the premium programs that you have, especially the monthly seminar with Chris every month. I really get a lot of, out of that. And, and the video he puts together at the end is amazing. and. It also feels good to actually have Derek O'Kearney uh, review your hands sometimes. And uh, I didn't do so well sometimes, but every <laughs> once in a while he threw me a bone and said, ah, oh, this was the right move. But um, obviously, uh, as well, you know, I'm in the uh, book study most of the time with Rob. Um, I really get a lot out of that. And um, I try and make some of the uh, Saturday um the monthly meetings with Gareth James and stuff a little, little bit difficult for me on Saturday afternoons, especially during the summer. But uh, I think those are the three things that, that have really introduced me to a lot of new concepts um, and, and made me think about my game in a, in a much different way than, and, and that's led to my being able to ask these questions in, in the forum, but um, probably about a year ago, well, we're always this way. We don't know what we don't know. Um, but at least now I knew that there was a lot more that I didn't know a year ago than <laughs> than I know now, so to speak. Well, that's great. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned a few there. I, I, you know, Chris Jones does our, our monthly theme, the theme of the month every month and doing this deep dive play along seminar um, where our premium members get together and they play their cards in a way that Chris has God mode. He can see everybody's action. Um, and then he and his peer, Darrow Carney, uh, get together and uh, analyze the play afterwards. And um, I know you have had a few hands in there. Hey, Chris, okay, you can jump in if you want. E easy there, Tiger, easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I know our, our members have really appreciated getting that uh, awesome feedback, not only from Chris, but of course, uh, from Dara himself. Uh, who's who's a fantastic who's a member of the Wrecking Crew as well, and, and a fantastic player and a fantastic guy. Um, and of course, yeah, you know, having Rob's help going through the book study every every uh, two weeks, um, the work that he does there to put that stuff together is great. Um, and then you mentioned Gareth James, another member of the Wrecking Crew, um, who's also shared a lot of insights with our with our premium members through his uh, monthly study groups there. 
and uh, the fantastic videos that he has available over at the MTT Poker Academy. Uh, those are great. The other thing that uh, really made a big difference for me was I, I decided that I was going to play in the home game every night. Mm. And I did so for probably five or six months. Um, and even though there's no real scorekeeping in there, there is something in the um, in the Poker Stars lobby that it is, you get a certain amount of points for how you finish in each tournament. And I noticed that there were a few people who were also tracking that and trying to end up with the most points at the end of the month. And I don't believe I ever won it, but I was consistently getting up there. And that gave me a lot of confidence in my game. Um, and that's, in fact, gave me the confidence that I could possibly try playing online which i hadn't done before um and then i slowly moved up online from the point where you know my goal in a tournament was to min cash and now min cash i won't say it's routine but um you know I, i'm getting past that point a lot um and now my goal of course is is to win each time which is yeah. a big difference from where i was a year ago uh, that's fantastic I, I i do think the home games that we do here that john runs you know we do uh 10 10 or 11 every week <laughs> it's hard to believe um but yeah they're they're free they're free to play they're free to join um it's it's a great place to come and practice to get reps to work on things that you might not be fully comfortable with yet but you don't want to take out into the real money tournament streets um and when it comes to play money home games i i firmly believe this is the toughest field that you will find in regular uh play money play people take this very seriously they're all trying to learn there's a lot of bragging rights on the line and of course uh there's these beautiful and elusive coveted uh rec poker pins that um uh you know we just we'd like to show those off as often as possible hey ben why don't you lean forward and let everyone see yeah oh look at that look at those beautiful pins off on the side of that hat they're fantastic yeah just goes to show um but i is it john i just to cap it off i just want to say it's been great to see you develop in this way and i'm so glad and i know i, I know i speak for everyone here on the wrecking crew uh, when I say that, I'm just so glad that you've found this benefit from the community membership and from the premium membership and from getting involved. You know, um, it's 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 paid off and it's just it warms my heart to see it. And you deserve it. And I'm so glad uh, that you're here to talk about it today. Thanks. Well, here we are. We've got a hand uh, that John posted. Now, the theme of the month in December um, again, happy holidays, everyone. This is the last uh, podcast that we'll be releasing in this month uh, that's based on the theme. The theme is playing against limpers. So we have a hand here from John. It's called Playing Suited Connectors. If you want to look it up in the Rec Poker forums, like I say, they're free to join. Go check it out. Um, John, you say that uh, one of the weakest parts of your game is playing or not playing uh, suited connectors. And uh, you say in your forum post here that because you're not confident of your ability to play them post-flop, you often made that dreaded compromise of limping along with them, uh, folding if raised into, and just hoping to hit the flop uh, and sort of playing them kind of uh, uh, fit, uh, fit or fold post-flop. And that is something that generally we want to avoid as poker players. We don't want to be that sort of straightforward in our play. But I think suited connectors give a lot of people that same problem because they're obviously very flop dependent. Um, if, you know, in this case, we're talking about a hand with the seven of clubs and six of clubs. And, but of course, for any suited connector, you can imagine that there's a lot of flops that are not very good for these holdings at all. And then some flops where they really smash it. Both of those are kind of easy to play. If you get a very strong draw, uh, then you can feel good about playing that hand. If you have like, you know, ace, ace, 10 on the board and you're holding six, seven, uh, it's probably not going to be uh, the kind of board that you were looking for. So when you miss, they're also kind of easy to play, but they can get real sticky when you end up making one pair. And that's what happens in the hand here that we're going to examine. So let's just get into the uh, let's get into the hand and we can talk about uh, the action that we're all facing. So this is uh, an MTT on ignition. Uh, the table has eight players at the moment. 
It's 300, 600 blinds with a 60 ante. And we're about a half hour after the four hour registration has closed. So registration's closed, but we are still, um, have not made the money yet. The bubble's yet to burst. And um, as John said earlier, you know, min caching, that's such a routine now that uh, we're not even getting excited about that. So we're trying to go get it all up top. Is that about right? That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and people should know, especially in multi-table tournaments, all the money is at the final table. Um, making a min cash is important because it's it's the big it's it's one of the big jumps in the in the in the payout ladder from from zero to min cash is a, a is quite a big jump. But um, to to really profit from multi-table tournaments and large field tournaments generally. Uh, you need to get to the final table. That's where most of the money is. And then specifically the top three, the way that uh, ladders and payouts go down, typically the top three players are the ones that make most of the money. Um, so you should be trying to win. Uh, it's one thing to hang on and get paid, but you really want to be in that top group if you really want to make money um, from large field tournament poker. So the uh, you said that you late registered and. The average stack in the tournament right now is about 60 big blinds. You've got 28 big blinds and uh, we're coming up on the bubble, but it's not exactly right around the corner. So we have 28 big blinds. We're on the button and we've got the seven of clubs, six of clubs. Middle position who has about 100 big blinds, uh, they limp. We have 18 hands on them, which is not a big sample size, but... They're playing VPIP 50, PFR 6, 3-bet 0. So if people can visualize this player, they're playing 50% of hands, but they're only raising 6% of hands. And that is the kind of information that even on 18 hands, you can start to make some assumptions about their play. Um, they're going to be, you can sort of, in my in my HUD, I tag them as green for being wide and passive. Um so that's something that we can say about it. And that's what you say in your in your post here as well. Uh, the cutoff limps behind. They've got 76 big blinds. And we are sitting there with seven, six of clubs and 28 big blinds. So we're covered by the two players here. And we're facing two limps. So before I say what we do here, um, we're facing limps a lot. And I know Chris has done a lot of work on this already. I'm talking about how to play against limpers. Like I said, it's the subject of the theme this month. So anytime we're facing limpers, we should already have an idea. You know, these are the kind of hands I'm planning to raise over limpers with. These are the kind of hands I might over limp and try and see a flop. Um, these are the hands that I'm actually going to fold, even though they seem like they might be a perfectly strong hand. It's just that they don't play well multi-way or something like that. Um, Chris, how important is our own stack size when we're thinking about which hands to raise over limpers or which hands to limp behind? Um, I find stack size is something that we don't, as recreational players, we don't focus on enough, but it, it, it I feel like it's pretty important to how we play limp pots. Yeah, it's, it's almost the most important thing, I think. Um, there's, I think the things to consider when we're talking about limpers are position, like always. Uh, and the hand class, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, but that's a lot of what breaks down in the um in the seminar deep dive that we talked um, that I that we did. You can find it on Rec Poker. Um, but that becomes a very important factor. And there's a great video from Red Chip Poker that sort of weaved into the the deep dive that really talks about actually one of the hand examples it talks about is seven six of clubs. Mm. Um, it has. Um, you know, what do you do with aces here? What do you do with seven, six of clubs? What do you do with ace queen offsuit or an ace queen suited? Um, and then it breaks down also small pocket pairs. But when we're thinking about hand class, that's another really important factor. And then it's stack size. It's the effective stack size of how these things relate to each other. Because when we think about a hand like seven, six of clubs, right? What we're thinking about in normal play 
right? When we don't have, because I think limpers always just throw everything off for people in their mind. They're like, I don't know. They're, they could have anything. They could have eight, three offsuit. They're just crazy. I don't know how to play against these people. But, but what we want to return to is the idea that seven, six of clubs, right? Is a hand that we already know when we're playing against a player just open raised. This is a type of hand class that likes to have very big effective stacks because we know that it has, um, you know, you're you're rarely going to flop great, but when you do, you can win a lot of chips. So you want a lot of chips available. Um, so the more we can do with a hand like that uh, to extend the what the stack to pot ratio, the SPR, the better. So what that means to me is then that becomes a hand that maybe is a really good candidate to overlimp, right? It's a hand that can play multi-way fairly well, that benefits from having larger stacks in play, and we lower the SPR every time we raise, right? So if we can extend that and make it larger, and we can have a hand that we can comfortably go multi-way with, because as you mentioned, if it comes ace, ace, 10, we're just out of there. We've only put one big blind in there. Um, but if it comes the kind of flop we're going to see, now we've got something to play with. Um, and we haven't invested that much. And especially when we're getting short, that becomes a really big factor. So that's some of the the, the factors we really need to think about when we're facing limpers. The other thing I think that comes up in this hand, and, and John mentions it later in the post, and maybe we would want to get into this, but there is a kind of limper, a really like standard type of limp player that likes to limp call a lot with hands that um, are very dense with like aces, kings, Broadway cards, right? Um, and uh, predominantly aces, like they'll do this with pretty much any ace in their their range and then a lot of that like king queen queen king jack queen 10 those kinds of hands right um one of the things that uh when we raise against them what we ultimately know about these players right is that they don't fold though that whole that it it doesn't shrink like when we're playing against somebody who's opened and is maybe a little bit more studied and we raise them they can fold right? They can fold part of that range. So a lot of those aces might disappear. That ace six offsuit, ace seven offsuit that they opened and then we three bet over, they're going to fold that in a heartbeat. But when we raise a limper, they're going to call with every ace. And that starts to make our seven, six, raising with a hand like seven, six, less, even less valuable because now we're we're already starting off in a place where we're very, very likely behind and we're bloating a pot and we've already got a short stack. So I'll shut up because that's, I'm talking too much, but that's, that's at least where I would start thinking about this. Chris, there's only one person on the show that talks too much and they're talking right now. I think everyone would appreciate hearing more from you. So um, don't hesitate. And of course, everyone else on the panel, uh, feel free to jump in here. Um, Rob. Yeah, I think that uh, everything Chris said obviously is correct because that's what he does. But <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I I look at in that situation is I look at the ranges of hands that I would open with from the button because I believe he was on the button. He was. And I would look at all the, the range of all the hands that I would open there and I would continue to open them just as if no one had limped with the only difference being that I would probably raise the amount of my open. And I believe that's exactly what John did. So I think at this point in time, where we're at right now, I think John has done at least what I would have done, not saying that I'm an expert or anything, but I just, from in general, that's how I would play that same situation. Um, one other thought I want to add in here is that we're playing, we are the effective stack right now with 28 big blinds. And so we are in a position where if we make a, a pretty strong hand, like a straight or, or a flush, I mean, I'm talking about a flush specifically here because we've got uh, the six, seven suited. If we make a flush and it goes multi-way, then we're not going to mind getting our chips in 
because we only have 28 big blinds. If this was an earlier tournament stage where we had 100 or 150 big blinds behind, then getting a flush over flush situation is actually much more uh, of a problem because um, we have a deeper stack behind. So this is the kind of hand where, you know, I tell some people when you're deeper stacked, this actually makes a pretty good isolation raise uh, because you're going to knock out some of those other uh, flood. Obviously, you also still get to represent all the strong hands, which is another benefit of raising over limpers. But um, you really want to get heads up in that kind of a spot. And you can not only make the flush, but you're less likely to be playing against someone else who's playing for a higher flush. And it also gives you the chance to represent um, other strong hands, which is more important when you're deep stacked because you can make players fold uh, by threatening their stack. In a spot like this where we're the effective stack with 20, 28 big blinds, we're not going to be able to apply that same pressure to these other players where uh, they have us so deeply covered. And um, so I think, uh, as Chris says, it, it probably plays better as a uh, as a call in, in from that point of view. Um, what I John, what I was yeah. thinking here at the time is that with this stack size, if I had been out in a middle position, I, I might have limped along here. Um, if I had a little bit of a smaller stack size, maybe twenty or less, I'd be folding this um, mm. because I don't think that there's enough. Um, I can't think of the word intended odds or. Oh yeah, the implied odds. Yes, the implied odds. Um, but here, um, as I think I said at the beginning of the, of the broadcast, I decided I was going to play this a little bit more aggressively. And since I was on the button, um, I, I, I decided that, that this was the time for me to, to try and raise with a, with a suited connector, correct or incorrect. Um, but th th that was my thinking at the time. Yeah, I think, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, and actually, that that's another point that we mentioned briefly before we went on the air was um you you are adapting to playing online now yeah you, know, you play more live traditionally um and you've been sort of playing different stakes one of the reasons that you chose this tournament was that it was a five dollar tournament which is lower than the the stakes that you normally play and you felt that it would kind of free you up to play a little more aggressively and i think that's just such a great mindset because again whether this should be a raise or not um you never want to be playing in tournaments where you're not comfortable pulling the trigger on aggressive actions because you just you will never be a successful poker player without adding aggression into your game. It's not going to happen. So um, playing in a tournament level or a stake level where you feel like you can still appreciate the value of winning, but you're not going to sweat, uh, uh, you know, a bad run out or something like that gives you the ability to take these aggressive actions when you believe that you should. And I think that's, I think that's crucial. So I just wanted to mention that point here too. Yeah. And it's also the difference between um, feeling that I don't have to min cash now. Um, yes. That I, I, I would never raise in these positions previously because I was just trying to get to the min cash because that was my goal, but that's no longer my goal. So now I feel a little bit freed up. I love that. Yeah, that's right. And that's how that's how you play big picture poker, right? Because I think that's part of your evolution from just looking at the one, the two cards in front of you and playing this one hand versus playing your entire range, playing your entire tournament, you know, all the different tournament stages, thinking about the tournament as one session. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so I love I love all of it. I love all that. So um, what ends up happening, John, you raise to four big blinds. Uh, and I think maybe the only note I would have on that is that facing two limpers, I would probably raise a little bigger. Um, if I like to, I think one of the things we've talked about here before, Rob, as you pointed out, that if there's one limper in front, then you take your typical raising size and just add one big blind to it. So Rob, if he's on the button here and he would normally be opening to two and a half, if there was a limper in front, he'd open to three and a half. Um, if there was two limpers in front, he'd open to four and a half. So I think um, opening to four is is not like an error, but um, like Chris pointed out, players that limp have already kind of put a lot of themselves out there. You can tell a lot about them. A, they like calling. 
They like seeing flops. They're going to take passive lines. And if you give them a good price, they're going to take that price. Yeah. And I'll, I'll I, just I think, oh, go ahead, Rob. I was just going to say, I think yeah, from 28 big blinds, my normal raise would be a min raise there. I'm probably not going to go two and a half. So I think, you know, you go the two plus one plus one, you're at four. I think that's perfect sizing for the stack size and the position. Hey, Chris. And, I, you know, the other thing, the other thing that came up um, in that video, and as I've been reading a, a lot about playing against limpers, um, just something to challenge that thinking a little too. Um, because we are playing against a set of players that is likely not as well studied. Um, I really think when we're playing against limpers that we can abandon the ideas of balance for the most part. Mm. Um, and what that means for me and what came up in the video um, was that we can adjust the size of our raise versus a limp if we just have one standard opening size, I think that's, we need that. We can't be saying, I, based on the class of my hand, I'm going to open two to three to four big blinds to five big blinds. Like, we can't be changing that up. But when we're talking about playing against limpers, we can. Um, we can actually, because it's going to come up so seldomly, because it's going to not, you know, unless we've got, like, really good players to our left. Um, cause I'm not worried about the limpers. I'm only worried about the people behind me. Potentially we can start to vary up our limping size, uh, over our raise over limps. Um, and one of the things we can start to take into effect is like a hand like aces or a hand like ace queen or ace Jack, um, can raise bigger and lower that SPR against the hands that are all going to call us like a six and ace three and whatever. Whereas a hand like seven six can either over limp or raise small, and I would especially with this kind of stack depth against this kinds of players, my first preference would be to over limp. My second preference would be to raise small, because I don't think we're generating folds enough for this, uh, unless we go really big for this to really uh, matter much. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, yeah, Ben, jump right in there. Yeah, I mean, I'm all team Chris here. I, I like the uh, the limp behind or, or a smaller raise, especially if we're in position. And post-flop, we're going to be able to control the size of the pot because we are in position too. And where we're against somebody who can potentially knock us out of the tournament, I like playing a little bit of a smaller pot. And then, like you say, if you, if it comes with an ace, we can just get rid of our hand and, and you know, on to the next one kind of deal. So, I, I really like that point from Chris, which is that we are tailoring our the amount of balance that we have in our game to the skill level of the players that we're going to be in hand with and people that open limp typically are less studied than player because it's just it's objectively in today's game it's 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 a weaker choice than to open and have some add some fold equity to your hand um those players we don't need to balance as much against we can just kind of play a little more straightforwardly um, raise more with our big hands and raise less with our other ones. So that's a that's a great point. And we often project some sophistication on our opponents on this show it, it, that might not actually be there always, uh, especially in the games we're playing. You know, it, it, if we're recreational players playing recreational poker games, the folks that, you know, join a training site like Rec Poker or listen to the podcast and get involved in these conversations we're going to have a, a skill edge or at least a, a, a training edge, a knowledge edge on a lot of the other recreational players at the table. And that's sizing is a great way to exploit that edge, to take advantage of that edge um, and to give yourself an advantage over those players. So I love, I love everything about that. So uh, we raise it up to four big blinds. The blinds fold the original limper calls and the second limper folds. So, I mean, they're getting a really good price. So I don't know what they were limping with the first time that they chose to fold here, but um, okay. Glad that they did. We get to go heads up here in position anyway, which is excellent. Um, and we're in kind of a bread and butter spot now. We, you know, Sky Matsuhashi talks about this in his learning material a lot. 
We've got position. Um, we're in a heads up pot and we are the one who made the last aggressive action pre-flop. So our, our range is uncapped. Their range is capped. We've got position. Um, this is a really good spot to be in. Well, if you thought it was a really good spot to be in before the flop came out. So the, we, we were holding seven, six of clubs. The flop comes two of clubs, three of clubs, seven of hearts. So we've got top pair. We've got the flush draw. And we've even got a backdoor uh, to the straight. So this is a pretty great spot for us. Um, and when it's checked to us, I think we should be betting here all the time. Um, I don't think we should ever check this back. We've got a value hand that is uh, needs a little protection from overcards, but we can also improve on lots of turns and rivers to a very strong hand that wants to play a bigger pot. So I think a bet here is pretty mandatory. What do you guys think sizing wise on a, on a board like this? And I, I don't know if we want to talk about what we would do with our entire range or what we want to do with exactly this hand. Again, we're playing against a limper, so I'm not sure how balanced we need to be. Um, what, what do people like when we've got this great, because we've got this real mix of hand strings here. We've got a made hand, but it's actually, in a way, the weakest part of our hand quality right now because the odds of a pair of sevens being best at the end of the river is pretty low uh, if they've got two overcards. Um, but we have these opportunities to improve to a straight or a flush, which are going to be very, very strong when they do. Um, I'll just let whoever unmutes first jump in here. But do people like a smaller bet, uh, a bigger bet? Here, Ben, why don't you lead the conversation? Yeah, this feels like I've been in this spot so many times <laughs> and I've always just reverted to the small bet because that's, you know, oh, a third pot. You know, I'm the pre-flop aggressor. I can just put in a third pot bet. But Chris has kind of been warming me up a little bit to like these bigger bets and, you know, pot size or three quarters. Yeah, see, Jerry. <laughs> He's <laughs> or getting three excited. quarters or, you know, 66%, <laughs> you know, in that range, two thirds. So I don't know what you guys think about sizing up here on this flop. I know Chris is all excited. What do you think, Chris? I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's alternative perspectives here. Um, John mentions in his post, you know, the um, SPR, that if we bet big here, we're setting up a pretty low um, SPR on turns and rivers. And that is something to consider. But again, I want to return us back to the fact that we're playing against a limper. This range right now, uh, unless they've got twos or threes, or I suppose sevens, but we block that. Um, the the only thing that beats us right now are sets. Like that is like the the only thing on earth. I don't believe that they really. Maybe they maybe they've got eights or nines or something like that. Maybe maybe or maybe even tens, I guess, if they're really passive. Um, so there may be some overpairs out there, but I think they, that this kind of player also tends to lead those, right? This is a mm. kind of like limpers also lead, right? Limpers, when they hit their hand or when they're like, ah, oh, now, now my nines are safe. Like that comes a bet right there. So like, I'm even discounting them having some of those holdings. We have a vulnerable hand. It's got a lot of strength. It can withstand people calling us. This is a hand. And we've got a passive opponent who likes to to keep going with hands. I don't think a small bet accomplishes much. I'm betting big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ben guessed it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I like that too. And I think in if we if we had a different hand here, um, we'd want to be betting big as a bluff to get our opponent off uh, some of the hands that, that we don't want them to, to continue with. And so on, on boards like this, we're probably going to be checking behind at, at a pretty high frequency. Uh, but when we do choose to bet, it's going to be with a bigger sizing. And I like, I like that choice here. Um, and just to reinforce Chris's point, if you think about it, it the, the flop is seven, three, two. So yeah, they're limping with pocket twos, they're limping with pocket threes, they're limping with sevens, but we block that. No one's playing three, two, no one's playing seven, three, no one's playing seven, two. So the the combos of very strong hands, as Chris points out, are really reduced to, to sets. 
they could have a hand they could have a hand like seven nine or seven eight or something that would have us uh beat with a kicker problem um a a seven two beats us yeah a seven that that feels really possible yep um although again we've got the seven of clubs the seven of hearts is out there so they could have you know a seven of diamonds or a seven of spades i guess would be a, the available suited combos um and Probably some players will off, su- i think they'll have the off suits too they'll have every ace yeah okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah john I, I i defer to your uh experience here in, yep. in this particular uh player pool and um, some people are limping a lot of that and truly they might have seven four yeah they really yeah. might I mean, yeah. And th- but that also right. So if they have seven three right or seven deuce right, then that also means they've they have so many oh, sure. hands that are going to have to fold, yep. and um and but all of those, all of the but, if they have ace five ace four ace nine, um, they're probably going to call a small bet. But are they going to call a pot size bet? Are they going to call a shove? I don't mm. mind shoving here, honestly. I, I actually really like it. Let's just, we've got 11, 11 big blinds are in the middle. That is so valuable to our 28 big blind stack. We've got a vulnerable hand, but I think we're ahead. If they want to run their equity with ace nine offsuit, great. I'll take that all day. And here's here's where I became paralyzed. And I said, small bet. Big bet, small bet, big bet. Why don't I pick something in the middle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dreaded compromise, and, right? And yep, there's that compromise factor again. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so this is this is something uh uh you know regular listeners will know that we're all big fans of the Thinking Poker podcast, originally with Andrew Brokus and Nate Mavis, now with Andrew Brokus and uh, Carlos Welch. Um, one of the things that Andrew's kind of famous for saying is that if you're faced with two extreme options like raising or folding sometimes people will call as a compromise don't don't do that folks you you usually you're torn between those two outcomes because they have good things going for them and you should pick one or the other and i think that's what john's getting at here um could have bet big or check behind went for a smaller bet instead to compromise and you kind of lose some of the benefit of of both of those on the extreme there rob did you have something on that I just uh, I'm I'm driven back to the Matt Berkey podcast where he mm. talked about if you go to the flop and you hit top pair, you have a hell of a lot more equity than you realize. Even though your top pair is only a seven, you don't have a kicker, but you're blocking all the other sevens. So I I think what Chris said about just going all in right here, I think is a very viable option. I think it's a very good option. You not only have top pair, you have the flush draw. You have the backdoor straight draw. You have so much going on with you actually flop really, really strong with the actual holding that you have. So this is a definitely an opportunity where you could go all in right here. Now, obviously, if he wakes up and he's got, you know, pocket jacks and can't get away, well, that that happens. But I think there's an opportunity here to fold out a lot of hands that have some equity against you right now that you're still ahead of right now. And we can still and, beat jacks uh, if we get there. Like there's still lots of ways for us to get there. If they do got, have jacks got, or nines or four, 14 outs against yeah, jacks or something. Like, right? We got, we got loads here going on. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happily getting it in here. Yeah. And this is actually a good example of um, even if we didn't have a pair here, um, when we've got the overs, like let's say this was uh two three six instead of two three seven, or let's say we had uh seven eight and it was two three six instead, so we had two overs and the same flush draw and the same backdoor uh straight drop. We don't even have the showdown value of having the top pair, but I still love a huge bet here in that case because we have a ton of equity in this hand. And there's no real bad outcome for us. As Chris points out, when there's 11 big blinds in the middle already, we, we're down to 24 ourselves. That's almost half our stack. We can pick it up right here if they fold. We love that outcome. And if they call, sometimes they're behind. And when they're not behind, we have a ton of ways to improve to a hand that's going to 
definitely beat a one pair hand. And that's the kind of hand you're going to be behind here uh, most often. First. And just to be clear, just so that in case people are listening, like, oh, I get to do this all the time. This is an exploit against limpers. Like we can, again, if this was a standard hand, I think it would be a disaster to take this line, right? So I just want to make that clear so that everyone doesn't start doing this in like a normal hand. <laughs> but against limpers, this is, a, I, I think, a very clear exploit that we can make. Um, and um, you'll often, I think you'll be shocked how often you're sometimes even called by a hand like ace nine mm-hmm. in this spot mm-hmm. uh, when you shove. Which is a great outcome. Yeah, I mean, that's like, it's like, just print me some more money, please. Just print it (laughs) off. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, You know, poker is a game about other people making more mistakes than you and bigger mistakes than you. So if someone's, if if someone's shown you that they're uh, predisposed towards limping and calling and playing wide ranges passively, encourage them to continue making that mistake. You know, um, when you've got a hand that benefits from action, size up and, and make them make a bigger mistake than they would make uh, to a smaller size. So, all right, that's all some very abstract talk that we've had about that. Um, we do make the bet. Uh, we bet a little less than half pot and get called. And at this point, there's uh, 1,200 chips in the pot. We've got about a little less than 1,200 behind. So we're at a, an SPR of about one, or we, we've got about a pot size bet to go, which is a good situation to be in, to be honest with you. Like, it's nice to be able to have that when you're bluffing, a pot size bet can get some folds. And when you're value betting, a pot size bet can get some calls, depending on uh, what part, of, wh- where your opponent is in their distribution. So um, I love this. Uh, we get to the turn. Now, the turn is the ace of spades. So we were talking about how many great cards there were out there for us. Any club, any five, any four, any six, any seven. Um, Those would all be fantastic cards for us. The ace is not a very good card for us. So as John points out in his post, um, for one thing, we don't have any straight draws anymore. So our back door did not improve. We can no longer continue uh, on the expectation of making a straight on a future street. Our flush draw is still in play, but we used to have top pair, and now we don't have top pair anymore. And we've already talked about how the pro- the mistake that these players make is that they call too widely with hands like ace nine. Well, when the ace comes, I mean, it it, it sucks, but it's kind of it's just a bad card. We I see a death card in the chat here. I think that's exactly right. Like. It's just it's just a bad card. And sometimes just bad events are going to occur in the hand and you don't get to choose. It's too bad that this happened here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm a lot less optimistic about our ability to, to win this hand at showdown now. Because um, not only do they make an ace often, but you raised over limpers. So if they don't have an ace in their hand, now they're going to think that you have an ace uh all all your hands that you didn't have uh, a winning hand before a lot of them paired up with the ace now so it's going to be hard for you to get paid um if you do improve rob did you have something on that point i'm just gonna say any offsuit ace is the absolute worst card that could possibly come out so as wonderful as we felt on the flop when we saw that flop with our hand this this actually dashes all our hopes and dreams, and we are <laughs> now in the depths of despair because we know that we have no possible way of winning this hand unless we hopefully just bluff it off into somebody that already has an ace. Yep. And now I think we're at the point where um, we really just need a club to improve. And that's the only way we're going to – or a seven. Uh, you know, maybe a six, I guess. If we make a six or a seven or a club on the river, uh, I'll feel pretty good about our, our hand. Not that you can't ever have two pair here. You could have some ace two, ace three um, that that called as well. That would make sense. But um, if a six comes, I'm, I'm going to feel pretty good about it. So this just goes to show how important position is because John wisely checks back here. And I don't think this is a good card to bluff on. Um, 
So let's let's just agree as a group that this is a poor candidate uh, for a bluffing spot. One of the nice things about that bet on the flop is that we 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 got ourselves to the river. We got to see the entire uh, board because when they check the turn into us and we get to check behind for free, now we get to find out did we make that seven or that six or that club, um, and then we get a chance to put money in if we if we actually improve. So. As John says, you know, at this point, we have to understand that uh, people have a very hard time throwing away an ace preflop, and aces make up a large part of the range of hands that they got here with. Um, so our seven is still going to be good against some hands. They might have like ten jack of clubs here. They could they could get here with some hands that we're ahead of, but it's a much smaller part of their range now. And it's going to get hard to get paid uh, by those kind of hands when the ace comes to. So I think we're all checking behind here. Looks like it. Excellent. Uh, so the river comes. It's the four of diamonds. So uh, the board is two of clubs, three of clubs, seven of hearts, ace of spades, four of diamonds. So there's a four straight there. If anyone holds a five, they would have the wheel straight. Uh, none of the flushes came in, and it's another such a low card that I don't think it really intersects with many players' ranges when it comes to the standpoint of making like two pair or something like that. I just don't think people are playing uh, that often. So we're stuck with second pair, lousy kicker. He bets very small. He bets about a fifth of the pot, about 21% of the pot. And it's on us. And now we have to make a decision. And this is really the last interesting decision of the hand. Um, when we're facing a, a small bet like this, we don't have to be often, we don't have to be correct that often um, because the odds we're getting are so good. But let's just kind of think about what are the range of hands that our opponent might consider bluffing with here. Um, it's really, it's really just the missed clubs draw uh, in my mind. We're blocking that pretty hard. Um, I'm not sure they would have taken that line to get here either necessarily. And even if they are doing it occasionally, folks, they're not doing it enough. They're not bluffing at a high enough frequency with that part of their range to make up for all the times that they just have an ace or that set of threes that now feels really good about it because the flush didn't come in. Um, this just feels like a real value bet to me. Uh, Rob, you unmuted. What's your take on that? Yeah, I'm just uh, thinking about the how we've typed this opponent. We've typed this opponent as being very passive. He limped. Um, so far, all he's done is limped and called. Now, we know these types of players are going to be play very passive throughout the hand, and the only time you have to worry about them is if they bet or raise. <laughs> and they're not going to bet or raise without a hand. So I think because of the type of player, I mean, your your statement about what they could bluff with and blah, 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 that's really good if we're up against a GTO opponent, but we're not. We're up against an opponent that is nothing but passive, and is never going to take an aggressive action without a real hand. Yeah, Chris? Yeah, yeah no, I, I just completely agree with that. And also, I think the other thing that this player is going to do is they're going to be sizing on us. This is not somebody I don't think that's like, I'm going to block bet because I have five, six, and, you know, like, I, I want you to bluff into me. This is a player that's saying, I've got a marginal hand. I hope you don't have a five. Please don't raise. <laughs> um, but I have an ace. I, I have an ace. I have an ace every time you've ever asked anybody ever <laughs> in the history of time. I have an ace. And um, the only question for me is not whether we call. I think I am folding this most of the time. If I have sense there is any possible way that this player is passive and timid enough that they would fold an ace to a shove. If I could say, actually, I do have a five. Uh, just so happens, mister, I have a five. Um, 
and now you need to fold your ace. If there's if I have any sense that that might work, uh, I might take a shot here. But I think it's going to work so seldomly against this kind of player type that I would just it would be a very special occasion. And mostly I'm just folding. And I specifically think it's not going to work in this case because of his stack size. Because mm-hmm. he's he covers you by so blinds. much. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I might try and talk myself into him having like Jack 10 of clubs or King Jack of clubs, but it's like really like probably not enough of the time. Like you say, for this small sizing, are we really saying that he's block betting? Like Chris said, like, I don't. I don't think enough of the time for us to really look him up here. Yeah. And like I say, I would I would consider it, and then I would look at his stats, and I would look at his HUD at, at the numbers there, and I would say, oh, there's no way, and then I would just fold. If this player is capable of bluffing, and they have King Jack or Jack 10, they're shoving. I don't mm, think they're betting to this mm, size. Yeah, that's a good point. With Jack yeah, 10 like clubs. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. they might have got it in earlier, too. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, good point. So, so I really like this idea of turning your hand into a bluff. Um, when 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 you can confidently put your opponent on such a narrow range of hands where we're like, oh, he's got an ace. <laughs> you know, like when you're when you're so clear that they have an ace, it's a good opportunity. It's something that we should think about. Um because we feel like our, our second pair is no longer good. Um we're not really like blocking the kind of hands we want him to have with our hand but it, against these kind of players again i think you can just take an exploitative line and uh if you feel like it's that they're capable of folding something here i like the idea of turning a lot of our hands into a bluff actually um but uh, here rod do you have something there just going back to that player type he's not folding an ace yeah ever right yeah yeah you know most so of the time they're not they're, yeah, there's I, I I play against a lot of these kind of players, and if they have any piece of that board, and especially when they got top pair, it doesn't matter what their kicker is; they're going to call you all the way down. All they know is they have top pair. <laughs> they they're not thinking about what you have. They all they know is they have top pair. They limped in with the uh, with the thought in mind of making a hand, and when they make a hand. Especially a hand that's top pair, they're going to the they're going to the uh, all the way with it. There's nothing you can do to get him off that hand. And so, what we need to do as poker players is we need to say, okay, so what's the right way to exploit this player then? And the way to do it is by betting big with hands that beat one pair. It's by value sizing up, and in the times when we have a stronger hand than one pair. This isn't one of those times. So if we've kind of decided this is the kind of player who calls too much, you know, overvalues one pair, um, this just does not present as a good bluffing opportunity. We're just, we're going to beat them another way. We don't get to do that this hand. We had the bad event this hand, and we just don't get to win this hand. Um, so John makes a, a, a very disciplined fold to, to a 20% pot bet on the river with second pair. Um and normally, we just then have to spend the rest of our lives wondering, did he have an ace? Like, did I did I actually get bluffed there? But one of the nice things about playing on Ignition is that you can download all the hand histories uh, with all the whole cards revealed 24 hours later. And so um, I honestly think that should make us bluff catch less. Because I think uh, recreational players, we we like to close that loop in our mind. We actually want to know if they were bluffing or not. And sometimes that causes us to call just because we want to know. Um, when you know that you're going to be able to find out tomorrow for free, uh, that should free us up to just make the discipline folds and know that we don't, you know, we're, we're just behind here more often than we're ahead and it's, it's okay to fold. And even if he's bluffing occasionally, it's still okay to fold um, because he's just not bluffing enough to make calling profitable. And that's exactly what happens. So um we found out later, John says, so we make the discipline fold. Uh, we found out later he did have an ace. He had the ace of clubs, six of hearts. So on the flop, he had uh, a different backdoor. Um, and he also had the, uh, the the backdoor nut flush draw uh, to the ace. So um, I'm not sure if they would have folded in this particular spot to a bigger bet, but um, the, he wasn't going anywhere. And 
we made a good and think of think about how well John played this hand. Honestly, if you consider that as soon as that ace came, he immediately recognized that he was no longer ahead. Chose not to bet the turn, even though with still had the flush draw. And, you know, there, there was a lot of opportunities to most players to feel like, oh, I can still win here if I just push my edge. Didn't do that. And then made this disciplined fold on the river. Um, and then found out that that he was right. So I just think this was uh, a really, really well-played hand. Yeah, Rob? I'm just going to, what if, now as played, we get to the turn and it's not an ace. Right. What do we do? I, I just want to run down another rabbit hole. That's because that's what I do. Um, but <laughs> it's true. <laughs> is there are there any other cards in the deck that would make you stop on the mm. turn other than that ace? Is is that I mean, Chris called it the death card, and I don't, I I can't think of any other card in the deck that would make me stop. I would probably jam with any other card showing up on the turn. A king might slow me down a little, but other than, I mean, but I think I'd still go for it with a king. And yeah, I think, uh, but anything besides that, I am getting getting the cards in, getting the chips (laughs) in. Getting the (laughs) chips in the middle. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Ben, it sounds like it's the same. Yeah, yeah, you beat me to it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So John played this excellently from the standpoint of, of where he was at. Um, I really think all it, it came down to a bad run out. I yeah. think, th- I think this was his hand all the way. And there was just one card that got in his way and it just happened to be there. It's a bad run out happens to us all. He still had chips to continue the fight. And as we know, he did pretty well in that fight. Yeah. Think about that. Right. So this is a tournament that John, I guess I'm just going to spoil. So John ended up winning this tournament. And you think about how this could have been over. If he puts a bet in on the turn, you know, that's the end of it. Um, if, you know, even if he if he calls the river, he's got a lot fewer chips. Maybe he can claw back from that, but we don't know that for sure. Um, but it just goes to show, like, you know, the value of those disciplined folds uh, can make a big difference. And people don't think about folding as a weapon, but if you can resist putting chips in other people's pockets and keep them in your own. I mean, you're playing offense with that fold. And I, I feel great about that. Yeah, Chris. If he takes my advice and shoves on the, the flop, he's probably gone too. I mean, if the guy has <laughs> ace of clubs, maybe he's calling, maybe he's calling. Yeah, it's true. It's true. True. <laughs> One of the other um, real advantages I've gotten from playing in the home games and such is when I got to the final table here, uh, when I got heads up, I was a five to one chip underdog. Wow. And we played for 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> and even though I recognize that technically there's no ICM when your head's up like that, I was playing it as if there was uh, to a certain extent. And it it really uh, it just helped me guide, guide me through that. And that's a real underrated point that we haven't mentioned here, but like shorthanded play is very difficult to practice. It's very difficult to study and drill, um, especially like three-handed heads-up play. It's hard to get meaningful reps in that situation without playing it, like without actually being in that spot. And that's one of the things that I think the home games are so valuable for. Um, People can get a ton of reps playing four-handed, three-handed, heads-up in meaningful situations so that when the time comes, when you're in that real money tournament and you're getting down to three-handed and heads up, you've you've got the experience. You might even have more experience than your opponents in that spot. And that's where the biggest, most expensive decisions are made. Uh, you don't want to be thinking about that for the first time when the money's on the line and it counts. It's just one of those things that it's hard, like, like ICM. It's hard to study. It's hard to drill. It's hard to really practice those circumstances without actually playing them. Um, in their in their own right so it's great if you can find a home game club like the rec Rec poker home games and get those reps in uh, that'll be really really helpful so um fantastic post from john uh, a great great result in the tournament obviously congratulations um you you end your post here uh with the last thing we'll talk about tonight because we're already kind of getting on this has been a longer episode but it's just there's been a lot of interesting decision points here um 
You say, so this is typically how it goes for me with suited connectors. I feel like I'm playing them poorly. Uh, should I even have been in the hand? Should the flop bed have been bigger or smaller? Should I have barreled? Should I have folded? Like, the, they, they're hard hands to play. And I think, especially in these kind of setups, um, how, how can we how how can we as a group leave John with a, a parting thought here about this kind of of a situation? Should he be raising over limpers in this spot? So we've talked about maybe maybe calling behind, treating this more like a low pocket pair, keeping the SPR higher so that when you do improve infrequently, you can then put chips in, um, which is the way that we approach like small pocket pairs and trying to set mine, that kind of thing. You're kind of set, you're kind of straight or flush mining uh, with these hands. Um, And is there like a cutoff? Chris, can you talk just a little bit about like, is there a, as the ranks increase, is there a a point where, okay, well now, now we should start raising over limpers instead. uh, and, And how do we decide in real time at the table? Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we study a lot. And then I think we're going to look at it like sort of in stack sizes and blocks and look at like, you know, that 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50. And then it's, it's going to go up um, from there. So it's somewhere. My line would be somewhere around nine, 10, Jack 10. If we're talking about suited connectors, it'd probably be in there uh, where I would start raising here versus because then that high cards those high cards start to have some value um there are hands that we can be ahead of uh when we raise you know if they're going to be calling with some of their ace it's probably jack 10 honestly in this specific situation uh where i would be raising uh but it's it, it, there's a lot of factors to consider and then yeah i think stack depth is a big we talked about it right at the top, but that really should factor into the hands that you're going to play at all, uh, but also the hands that you're going to uh, isolate with the hands that you're going to intentionally make the stack to pot ratio smaller um, to play. And those are typically going to be like high card hands and, and big pairs where you want to you want to feel good about getting it in with with a strong one pair hand. And that's just going to be harder to do with with suited connectors like six, seven and that and that kind of thing. All right. Well, any any parting thoughts here before we roll on out of here? Well, I just want to thank uh, John Kroll so much, not only for your support as a premium member over the last year, um, you know, your $15 a month helps us a lot. And I can tell, you know, you've been such a great member and uh, I can tell that you feel like you're getting your money's worth. And it's great to see it all come together here for you. Like I say, it's just been uh, fantastic to watch. And so thank you for that. And thanks for being such a great uh, member here at Rec Poker. Um, and of course it's just great to have you here. No, I do appreciate it, John. Um, and then of course, thanks to Rob and Ben and, uh, Chris and John Somsky for, uh, their consistent, uh, uh, insights. And thanks to Mark Prashan. One final time. We're going to miss you, Mark. Out of the running aces hotel, racetrack and casino. And you, the listeners, we'll see you again next year.